Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Hello, this is Alona Thompson with Palate Exposure Podcast. Welcome. I have a very special guest to share with you today, Huya Hashimi. Hello. Hi, Lana. How are you? <laughs> I am great. Um, we're continuously recording in the times of COVID, but that's not going to stop us from giving you guys some great insights and, and great life stories of some of the really significant individuals that I'm lucky enough to get in touch with. Um, so Puya actually has a dual role, which is really interesting and um, to explore. Uh, he has a startup called SpinTouch that he's going to tell us a lot about his software development company. And he's also the founder of Sip Awards, which is a very unique wine, excuse me, spirits competition. Wine on the brain this morning, you guys. Um, that is consumer driven. So we'll talk about that as well. But we'll start with a background, as we always do, because we want you guys to get to know Puya and who he was. He has... Uh, a really interesting story to tell. You were born in Iran, right? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Tehran, Iran, uh, Iran, which is the capital of um, Iran. And we moved here when I was, I believe, like seven or eight years old. So I didn't speak much English. Um, I went to ESL. And that's like English as a second language. It was It was definitely a struggle to kind of get accustomed to everything very quickly, but um, everything worked out. Um, here I am. Do you remember your childhood much? What was it like growing up in Iran? Not much in Iran. Um, I don't really remember much in Iran, but I do remember, you know, from uh, everything from uh, kindergarten to first grade, uh, all, all throughout the all different types of grade levels. I, I have a very good rem uh, re uh, memory of the, all that. Wow. So your family left um, for what reason? Yeah, it's it, it was actually when Iran and the U.S. were having major conflicts uh, and they were uh, about to go into a, a, a big war. Um, and and Iran and Iraq were kind of in a conflict as well. So. It was, it was just a very difficult time. I actually, I do remember one point in my life where we had to kind of go into shelter because there was, there were bombings happening in the daytime and in nighttime. That's really, you know, if I think about it, I'll probably remember some more things, but um, we decided, my, my dad decided just to take our entire family uh, and, and get out of there because it was obviously a, a very, very unsafe situation that was developing. So was a refugee status he applied for asylum or how does it work? Uh, I don't think it was that. It was, he had to, he had to kind of go through a lot of different loopholes. Uh, he, he had a really prestigious job in Iran working for, um, uh, I forget the company, but it was a, it was a US slash uh, uh, Iranian company that had headquarters everywhere. Um, and what he had to do was he had he couldn't fly us directly over to the U.S. because of the conflicts that were happening. Um, all 
international flights to there were kind of shut off. So he had to go to Turkey, which is a neighboring country, um, get us situated there. We, we followed and we were there for about six months. He went to the US um, himself and got kind of situated, got, got uh, a job, um, got our green cards handled. And then we, we flew in to meet him about six to eight months later. And this is the time of Khomeini, which was more, more or less like a dictator. Uh, and, and if they would have found out that we were doing this, you know, it would, it would have been a very serious kind of treason or spy um, allegations that would have been a very, very bad situation. So he, he risked a lot. He had a, he had a pretty good scenario. We were upper class in Iran and he pretty much gave it all away. Um, it was, it was also a scenario where, you know, to take anything with him, um, you know, whether it was money or a lot of, uh, to withdraw money that would have definitely put a, uh, a red flag in the scenario. So, so he pretty much gave it away to risk it all for our, our freedom and our life, which, which I'm very grateful for. That is an extraordinary story. I must say, um, I'm picturing you as a kid. Do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have one sister, two years younger. Got it. So two children, a wife, you know, obviously high status, like you described, you know, he had, a, you know, probably one of the better lives, right? You know, type of lifestyle in, in that context. Absolutely. And he had to give all of this up, his life's work, his status, you know, his home in many senses of that word to seek better future for you too. You must yeah. feel so much gratitude to that. Oh, I, 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 I do have that. I, and it's, it's every, you know, it's, it's all the things that you don't think about, you know, like you, you mentioned, um, your, your entire life, he's, he was there. I don't know what, how old he was when we moved out. I, I would assume in his forties. Um, but he had his entire family there every, everybody knew and his English wasn't, you know, my, my family's English weren't, weren't great either. So he had to kind of pick up something and, um, it, it's the, it's kind of the, the, the story of, uh, leaving a country with just the clothes on your back scenario, not exactly that, but it's fairly close. Um, you have to learn a whole new culture, a whole night lifestyle. And at the time, uh, if you think about it, it's, it was it was a very hot moment for the the U.S. and Iran relations. So uh, people like myself uh, didn't do well with with others that um, had that kind of um, conflict on their minds. So um, that that's also something we had to deal with for a few years. You know, immigration is such a hotly debated topic, um, and. I think we all agree that America is built, continuously built, not just was, on the backs of immigrants. Um, so it's, it's a very important topic to discuss, but oftentimes, um, you know, the conversation happens around the individuals that flee their countries with also nothing but clothes on their back, but typically it's poverty-ridden, dictatorial societies. And very little conversation happens around individuals like the deaf who gave up a ton for the privilege of being here. And it's such a powerful tale. Yeah. 
I mean, even thinking back, uh, even as schooling, he took hospitality management school, which didn't really mean much here um, because a, a lot of that didn't transfer. So it's, it's literally kind of starting from ground zero. Um, when you come, when you come from, especially a hostile country that the U.S. considered, uh, you really have to redo your entire life with your with your immediate family. Wow. So, where did you move to initially? Uh, we moved with some family that was already here uh, in L.A. Uh -huh. And yeah, so a few months in L.A., we were kind of moving about trying to see what would make sense and. It, it was a it was a matter of him trying to find a job as well, because again you're you're starting over, so it's really anything um, you can get, and making sure it's something that uh, you, uh, that you could support your family on, regardless if you like it or not. Mm -hmm. So, what did your dad wind up doing? Time me ask. Uh, a lot of maintenance type of type of jobs, um, a lot of labor intensive jobs. And then uh, one, of the, one of the positions he, eventually we kind of saved up. Um, he invested into a kind of a deli uh, or, or little market. Um, it's kind of stereotypical, but um, that, that started up, I think I was in, I, I wanna say I was starting out high school or uh, ending middle school. And that was a very difficult business. You know, I saw that they were, my mom and dad were literally um, manning the cashier debt, uh, station and putting shelves up and everything was kind of done from scratch because again, we didn't have a, a ton of money to invest. Um, and then there would be days where I would help out uh, after school. Um, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, however you want to think of it, um, that didn't work out and that that business had to be shut down and he had to kind of go back into finding kind of jobs here and there. Uh, and, and he's always been very simple and I've taken that from him. He's always been an entrepreneur at heart trying to uh, bring, something, uh, bring something out of nothing, right? To create his own product or his own um, store he sees opportunities and he kind of goes after it yeah. um, and, and I, right. so if I may ask what was he doing in Iran what was his type of profession it was more in the accounting field um, for companies that were also really involved heavily with the, the government um, and and yeah it was it was a lot of different accounting roles. So I, I'm just picturing again in my mind going from a high profile job to basically blue collar. Oh yeah. Family. Yeah. And, and he's told me stories where he's managed, you know, an entire department under his, under his role where there could be 20, 25 individuals that are reporting directly to him and their bosses are reporting to him. So it was, it was a very, you know, uh, executive level uh, position, and and to know that's where it came from, and you just have to make whatever work. That's 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 kind of crazy to me. You know, I just want you guys to think about it for a moment, because I know I am. You know, 
when you already have a family and you're some, you know, you've achieved so much in your career and you're not, you know, 20 year old, your dad, like you stated, was in the 40s, to all of a sudden completely uproot um, to a different country, different language, different culture, absolutely everything is changing in your world. I mean, I think it's much easier to do when you're younger, but he had to reshape his entire life and really mindset in order to um, really fit and support his family and survive, but also thrive. What an extraordinary man. I mean, I haven't met your dad, but I have so much respect for him and for what he's achieved. We all measure success differently. To me, it's the caliber of a human being that you are. You know, I don't measure it by the bank account, I measure it by the humanity. And, you know, your dad sounds like he has so much wealth just in who he is. So, um, he must have been such an inspiration growing up around that. Oh, absolutely. I, I don't think I would have a lot of my traits or qualities if it wasn't for him. Um, he kind of showed me that, you know, even when the, the cards are down or the, 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 all the opportunities are gone, there's, if, there's, if there's any kind of will, um, there's a way. Uh, it, whether it's going to be a success or not, that's really kind of up to you. And I take, and I take really ownership in everything I do. I mean, it's, it's easy to say you, you <clears throat> can build a company and it's become successful, but it's, it, there's a lot of, and I'm sure a lot of your viewers can relate to this, that there's a lot of obstacles along the way where most people kind of face those obstacles and give up one way or another. Um, and it's, it's about, the resilience of of finding a way through that whether it's to go around it break through it get a partner um read educate yourself uh get investors i mean there's an endless just knowing that you're not going to give up that's that's the first rule um i guess to, to kind of overachieving that i think it's such a poignant and relevant message i feel like now the whole world is being tested on that criteria how can you punt? How can you adjust? What type of ingenuity? What, how strong are you as a human being? How much of a backbone you have to survive this? And actually, you know, a lot of business owners are struggling with that right now. So how do they, you know, make it? Um, and I think it's those human characteristics that you just articulated that clearly thrive in your father, which facilitated the life that he created, the new life. He's actually done it twice in two different countries. Um, yeah. I think he instilled that in you. Um, you know, so I think that you're probably better equipped than many because of that. Um, a lot of people are panicking and justly so, but I think this is also an opportunity. It's kind of, you will separate women from girls and men, men from boys in a sense. Um, you know, we complain about wearing masks or that, you know, our life as we know it has been taken away. And compared to what your family went through, that sounds pretty weak. So um, I just want to point that out because everything, you know, is true in comparison, they say, right? And I think we need to keep that in mind when we start feeling too sorry for ourselves. Um, 
<laughs> so there you were in LA. Um, I'm kind of moving around a little bit. Um, what happens next? Like in, in your education and your life experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I went to school and, uh, and it, we, we did move around a lot, so it's hard to keep friends. Uh, uh, eventually, um, I decided to go to Cal State Fullerton, and, and that's in, in a Persian family, kind of a lot of uh, um, different minority families. Going to school is really, really important. That's, that's the determining factor, whether you're going to be successful or not. Um, so I got into Cal State Fullerton, went for a few years, and I just, over time, I just felt like it wasn't for me. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't picking up any of the skills that I felt. It, it was more teaching me how to learn or how to get through a class uh, than really educating me on any particular subject matter that I had a interest in. Um, and I love to learn. I, I mean, I'm watching YouTube all the time, watching documentaries, reading, reading blogs and reading posts obviously on subjects that I like, but not about, you know, the, the world history of what happened in 1685 and, you know, in some odd place in the world um, with some general um, and then being tested on it. So uh, eventually uh, uh, I did get into a lot of different positions and jobs. It was more sales roles where Again, I can kind of make an impact on my own um, career and um, uh, commissions and, 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 and uh, be performance-based. And I did really well in mortgage uh, back in when the, the, mortgage, the mortgage boom was happening. Um, and at that point, I was it, was it was an interesting time where I would have my nine to, my, my nine to six at the time and then right after, go to Cal State Fullerton to do night classes to eventually, hopefully graduate. And I would do that and I would go back to work the next day and I would be sitting next to a guy to my left that had a PhD uh, or he was, he was about to go back to school to get his PhD, had his double masters. Um, another guy that was gonna be going, uh, that, that had uh, uh, a bachelor's degree and I thought for a minute, I'm, I'm making more than both of these two guys and I'm, and I'm trying to go to school on my free time to get what they have, which wouldn't put me in a better situation than what, where they're at, you know? And, and the more I thought about it, it just didn't make sense. It's like to get, to get the certificate for me, it, at least it didn't make sense to be in exactly the scenario where these guys are. One of them was, um, an education, or I think a communications major, the other one had a, uh, um, an education background, but they were, again, trying to make money in the mortgage business, um, and I was doing better than them. So at that time, I, I stopped going to school. Um, my parents didn't like that very much. I, they didn't like it at all. Um, and I, and I kept promising that I would go back. I just needed some time off. Uh, that never happened. Uh, but but uh, I mean, it, 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 for them, it's important to say, or for a lot of families, it's important to say, you know, this is my son. He's he's an engineer, or he's a, 
Um, he graduated, you know, top honors. Um, that's really, really important for just the culture, right? Um, and, and that was where they got nervous about it and they didn't want to introduce me as this guy that just, or their son that didn't um, eventually ended up, end up anywhere. Um, but now they, they are very, very proud of me. Um, I've, I've, you know, now they can say, this is my son. He owns two businesses, two successful businesses. And that's, that's, that's all they kind of wanted. <laughs> some, some kind of accreditation or um, a title. No, that's understandable. Good on you. You appeased them a bit, but you knew you were going someplace. You had a vision for yourself, which is really important. You know, you knew what you didn't like, the academia, right? You knew that you gravitate more towards actionable stuff. That's what I'm kind of hearing you say, something practical. In so how did Spin Touch happen? Tell us the pathway from the mortgage business that you were so successful in Spin Touch. Yeah, actually, both Spin Touch and SIP Awards happened the same year. Um, it, Spin Touch was, uh, I, I found some technology online where there was an interactive bar um, that where essentially it was, imagine a giant iPad where it covers an entire surface of a counter and you put your drink on it and birds flock around it. Great for marketing. It still sounds amazing today, right? This was 12 years ago. Um, when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, this, is, this, this has got to come to the US. It was happening in Europe, happening in Asia. Um, and I was like, I, I love technology. And that's, that's something that I always, you know, get the latest and greatest, take things apart, put them back together. And I don't have any, obviously, formal education on that. It just, it's just something that drives me and gets me excited. And, um, you come to my house, I've got monitors and screens all over the place. Um, so when I saw that, I'm like, yeah, I, I'd love to bring that in. I contacted a few companies. Most of them were really uh, weren't interested in coming into the U.S. market or they wanted a huge, sizable investment. So just like anything, I kind of decided to say, hey, you know, if they were able to do it, I should be able to do something like that here um, and figure it out. So I looked through threads and forums, uh, a lot of do-it-yourself, and pieced a lot of things together. Um, literally at the time, started in my parents' garage. Um, got a used projector with very minimal budget. Got a used projector, got some mirrors, got some IR LED cameras, put it together and built something resembling that as a proof of concept. And then when I, when I, when it worked magically at like 2 AM after three weeks of work, maybe more, definitely more because shipping times were long. Uh, we didn't have Amazon prime back then. That's one thing. Yeah, it was, it was long, long shipping times. A lot of it was, was coming from, um, uh, overseas as well. So when I finally had it working, I had a proof of concept, pretty much poured a lot of the, the money I had saved up over the years and brought in an engineer. Uh, we built our first model. Our first client was, um, I believe the first client was MTV for their reality show, uh, MTV Cribs. They had this open house uh, event. 
they rented the unit out and then it kind of trickled in with different uh different clients um but that's really in a nutshell how it kind of started from really nothing to seeing it and saying if someone's able to do it somewhere in this world i i should be able to do that too there's there's really no reason and i just kind of kept trying whatever i could to make it happen freedom you have no software engineering design background at all oh software design no no no, I don't have any formal, uh, I have partial Cal State Fullerton credits, whatever they're worth <laughs> for business administrative. And you took LED and a bunch of mirrors and you put together this unit that resembles an iPad. I mean, I'm just processing this as you're describing it. Yeah, and this is before the iPad existed. This is before, this is right the same year um, the iPhone came out. And uh, so, so even the word multi-touch didn't exist back then. You know, when you were trying to explain it to people, people, like I gave you a perfect explanation. I mentioned it was a, it was, imagine a giant iPad on a surface of the screen. I couldn't give that explanation 12 years ago because you're like, what's, what's an iPad? Um, so it, it was, it was literally, it was the things you see in, in movies, right? Where you see uh, the futuristic movies where um, that's how I would have to explain it. We'd go to Home Depot or Best Buy and I would explain it and they would think I'm a crazy lunatic um, trying to create this thing. Somehow in your mind's eye, you saw the potential, you saw what it looks like. Right, absolutely, yeah. Your brain for a day, <laughs> forever. Um, most people, like, we get excited, you know, with a little magpie-like, right? As humans, ooh, shiny object, right? This is interesting. Oh, okay, moving on. You focused, and you created that object that you saw in your mind's eye. Absolutely. Yeah, for me, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. For me, it's anytime I see a challenge, I get more interested in getting past that challenge or resolving that challenge. Like a no to me sounds more motivating than a yes. It, well, it, it just it just like lights me up. It makes me want to turn that into a yes or a possibility or someone saying, no, that's impossible. Or an engineer saying that's not possible or a software developer saying no or a customer even saying no. Um, it's, it's, it's trying to prove them wrong, trying to prove all the naysayers uh, one way or another, rather than just, oh, okay, well, we'll figure something else out. Um, yeah, that, that to me, and, and that's always been the case. It's like, I, I, I have this drive of proving the, the naysayers wrong. If that's not a definition of entrepreneurship, I'm not sure what is. Um, how many people work for you now? Uh, in total, I would say, give or take about 15. Okay. So what does the product look like today? Is it resembling your initial vision? Uh, so we, yeah, it's, it's kind of morphed. I, I would say after three or four years of that, that we called it the I-bar trademarked it. And um, that was an okay run. It was a very niche product, right? Not, not many businesses want this interactive bar. Um, and not many bars 
necessarily want that or could afford it. So it was, it was just some, uh, some events. It, 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 more than anything, every, every kind of, even a small success for me, it's, it's just reconfirming what I'm doing is, is at least making some sort of difference. Um, and, and seeing these bigger companies and more and more big companies taking on a product that I made is just so empowering, right? So that kind of allowed us to become a sustainable company. Um, and eventually we got a few bigger accounts doing software development for, again, something that's really out of the box experiential projects from, from large touchscreen walls to uh, gesture technologies where you wave to the wall and it interacts with you. You've seen it in Connect um, technologies like with Microsoft. And this is before Microsoft really came out with the Connect. Um, and different things from uh, AR, VR. So m the, the software projects that really kind of are very visual and exciting that you see more happen in movies than in real life. Now you see them more and more in the event world and trade shows. Um, but that's that's kind of how SpinTouch evolved from an eyebar concept to more experiential, interactive experiences and storytelling. We do primarily uh, trade shows and innovation spaces, uh, and and it's grown pretty quickly uh, over the last twelve years. Uh, very impressive. Um, Thank I you. Actually, yeah, no, that's. Um, that's phenomenal that you were able to grow the business in the span of 12 years from a garage to 15 employees and high profile clients. Um, I've read recently that some of the larger um, distillation businesses are using VR, they're trying to innovate and really engage the consumer more and that's becoming, you know, um, an important part uh, of how they engage with their audiences. So. You, we're about to talk about the spirits business, so this is kind of a natural segue that your yeah. technology will be employed by constellation of the world and other mega companies that are, you know, moving in that direction. Absolutely, and it's uh, for SpinTouch now. And I mentioned most of our projects have been in um, trade shows and innovation spaces. Obviously, that business kind of came to a screeching halt as of recent. Uh, because of COVID. So what we did recently, as of three months ago, we pivoted and created a new product uh, for us, which is called and branded it Rapid Screen, which, uh, which, which basically is a visual thermometer to detect temperatures as people come up to the screen or come, come into a building or a venue or a business establishment. And you're seeing a lot of guidance from CDC, government, uh, counties, and yep. federal, uh, and FDA that require screenings uh, to occur for employees that are coming back. So we saw this as a timely opportunity to, to build something that can bring back, uh, bring back business in a safe way. And the response has been nothing short of incredible. I mean, we get, we get more inquiries and um, uh, interest in it on a daily basis than we used to get in a one month period um, or even a two month period. It's, it's, it's crazy. I've had to 
triple our sales efforts. Um, and I think that's even understatement of, of what we need to, to handle the, the major demand that this country needs. I mean, think about it. Every single biz, almost every business you can think of could use a product like this right now. Uh, yes, I lost my in Napa. I was just beaming from ear to ear because that was my first outing um, to a restaurant that I love. And I was greeted with, um, you know, the thermometer, you know, they take the temperature just like. Yep, with the person? Yeah, with the person. So I mean, it's a little off, but I won't lie. Just because yeah. <laughs> it's a necessity, I get it. There's no resentment whatsoever. But just as, you know, as a mechanism, I suppose. You know, taking temperature of every guest as opposed to having this gadget that you described, and that would make it so much more seamless and lovely. Absolutely, it's it's a little bit yeah automatic, um, and 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 it also has a mass detection feature, which some people are against masks and some people don't care, but um, some some establishments require masks, right? Instead of having an armed guard there telling people to wear masks. Um, you have this automated system just to remind people to wear a mask if they're not wearing it. Yes. Now, we're into the long haul for the flyers. I think it's becoming apparent that it's a marathon, not a sprint, even if we have some vaccines appearing in the horizon. I mean, we're obviously learning as we go. Every day, the articles come out about some other tidbit that they didn't know before, whether it's in you know patient care or how it mutates, develops, what's helpful, what's not, that I have a strong sense that we're in a new normal and it might be permanent. And as such, I think businesses like yours that really understand what the current needs are and rather than panicking, um, they create a product that's, you know, relevant and, you know, obviously highly useful, you know, and user-friendly. That's where it's at. Absolutely. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.